are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Some mornings I resist the temptation to do this. I'm not going to resist the temptation this morning. I got to say it. I feel it. I love my church so much. And I love getting to be a part of your lives. And I love it when we gather together like this on Sunday morning to worship together. And uh, I'm blessed. And I love, I don't say this hardly ever, and I need to say this to you, but I have an awesome staff that I work with. And I love the staff that uh, serves you. Aren't you thankful for all the pastors and the staff that God has given us? So, so blessed. So thankful. So on this Mother's Day, I've got to give it up to my wife, Annette. We have been together for 30 Two years as a married couple, going on 33. She's a great mom, and if you can be even greater, I think she's a greater grandmother to Sadie. I, I love this picture of Annette and me. Somebody snapped it when we were together at a little dinner one night, and um, and I just I just love it so much. I put it on my Facebook page, but I'm so blessed with Annette, and I just got to tell you that Annette is awesome. But, <laughs> we sometimes struggle when it comes to communication. And, and I've talked to Jesus about it, and I've said, Jesus, I don't understand her. And, and I sense Jesus saying, I don't understand her either, Rick, at times, you know. <laughs> so sometimes, sometimes this happens in our relationship, sometimes... We will kind of get to this point of where we're just like not doing well. And, and being the sensitive, caring husband that I am, I found myself looking into Annette's eyes and saying, Hey, baby, are, are you okay? Is, is maybe something wrong, you know? And, and it's at that point that Annette says to me, Really? You, you don't know what's wrong? Now, when she says that, I know that I'm in trouble. I just don't know what for. I, I don't know what it is that I've done. But, but somehow, if you're like us in your marriage relationship, women sometimes think there are some things that men should just know. You know what I'm saying? And when we don't just know it, it causes friction. And so I, I remember saying things to Annette like, hey, I wish you would have asked me. I would have done that for you. And she says... I shouldn't have to ask you to do that for me. You should just know, you know. And so, so sometimes we're in this deal of, I'm like, baby, are you okay? And she says, really, you have to ask. And then she says something that makes no sense to a guy whatsoever. She says this to me. She says, if you don't know, I'm not telling you. <laughs> now, now, I know this is crazy logic. But it seems to me that if I don't know, that would create an occasion for her to tell me what is wrong, right? I just don't understand that way of thinking at all. And, and Jesus, he told me he didn't understand it either. <laughs> and so I think what Annette is saying, if you don't have, you know, the intuition to figure out what's happening here, I think what she's really saying is, me telling you is probably not going to make much of a difference. Now, in Annette's defense, all right, 
One day Jesus is walking through the temple. And some Jews are walking along with him. And they say to him, why don't you just tell us plainly? Are you the Messiah? Just say it if you are. Enough with the imagery, enough with the metaphors. Don't keep us wondering any longer. Just, just answer us. Just tell us once and for all, are you the Messiah? And, and Jesus sounded a little bit like Annette when he said, basically, if you don't already know, then telling you is not going to do any good. If you can't see a connection, if there is not in your mind some kind of a logical connection between the miracles that I perform and my identity, then, then I don't think telling you is going to change anything. If, if you can't automatically see that, that these miracles that I performed and these signs that are occurring, if you can't connect that with my identity, then, then I don't think telling you is going gonna, is gonna to make any difference. And what I love about this passage that I'm going to share with you is that Jesus is in this conversation using metaphors about sheep and shepherd. And here's how he finally answers them. And so I'm summarizing this overall passage, okay, with these words. I am the God, Jesus said, who knows you, you are mine, and I am watching over you. I love this stuff right here, okay? I am the God who knows you. I know your name. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're thinking. I know about your heaviest concerns. I know about the load that you're carrying. I know about the burdens that you have. I know you. I know all there is to know about you. I know the numbers of hairs that are on your head. In fact, there is nothing that I don't know about you. I am the God who knows you. You are mine. You belong. You're not just out wandering without a home, without a place, without anybody to belong to. You belong to me. You are mine. I know you. You belong to me. And besides that, I am watching over you. You're not just on your own. You're not just by yourself. I'm watching over you. Somebody's watching over you, and Jesus says, it's me. And so I want you to repeat some words after me. He knows me. I belong to Him. He is watching over me. Those are good words. The gospel is really good news. There's all kinds of hope when there's Jesus. Say it again. He knows me. I belong to Him. He is watching over me. So I want you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John chapter 10. We are in this series called Raised with Him. And so today we're talking about we are raised to belong to Him. Okay, so chapter 10, I'll start reading in a moment with verse 22. But before I start reading, 
I want to help you a little bit understand better the Gospel of John. So I'm just going to tell you, you don't want to miss the next two minutes, okay? You don't want to, you don't want to be like, oh, I zoned out and I didn't catch that. You want to catch this, okay? It's going to help you kind of read the Gospel of John, understand the Gospel of John, even love the Gospel of John more. So here's what happens in chapter 1. In chapter 1, John says, Jesus is God in the flesh, He has come to us because God is incarnational. That's what God does. God comes to you. I believe God is coming to somebody this morning. God comes to you. Jesus has God come to us. He lived among us. He moved into one of our neighborhoods for heaven's sakes. He is the son of the living God. He will give his life for the sins of the world. And then what John does through chapters 2 through 10, and we're in chapter 10, it's kind of like a pattern or almost like a dance, okay? Here's what he does. He tells a story. He supports all this through stories. He tells a story about a sign that Jesus performs, like um, turning water into wine or healing a blind man who has never seen before. So he tells a story about a sign, a miracle that Jesus performs, or a claim that Jesus makes about himself, like you're going to read in just a moment. And then there's controversy. This happens 2 through 10, okay, as you read the Gospel of John. This is what's happening in this big section, 2 through 10. And then people are forced to make a decision. That's how John 2 through 10 works. He tells a story about a sign a miracle or a claim that Jesus makes. And there's controversy. It kind of blows up. And then people have to decide what they believe about Jesus. Now here's what some people believe. Some said, He is sent from God. He, he is God's anointed one. And I'm going to follow Him even if it costs me my life. And for many people it did cost them their life. They believed so much in Jesus that they gave their life. Others said he's demon-possessed or he's raving mad. He's nuts is what he is. And others said, no, it's worse than that. This is blasphemy and he should be put to death. And so here we are 2,000 years later and you're sitting in the same seats all those people were sitting in with the same decision confronting you what do you believe about Jesus? Wow. So let's go to chapter 10, verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication. Now, you remember the Bible is not just written to us. It was written about what was going on then to someone. And so this is significant. This is the context, okay? It was during the Feast of Dedication. We're going to talk about it in great detail at Jerusalem. So we know what city they're in. We know what season it is. It is winter. It's the Feast of Dedication, okay? Jesus was in the temple courts. He's walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there, they gathered around him and they said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense, man? You know, if you are the Messiah, just tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you. I wonder if there's now a long pause. I wonder if it's uncomfortable. I wonder if it's awkward. I wonder if there's this uncomfortable stare back and forth. But you do not believe. 
And then Jesus says, the works, the signs, the miracles, the works I do in my Father's name testify about me. If you can't make a logical connection between the miracles that I'm performing and my identity, I don't know what else I can do for you. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Ouch! I don't like this. I think he should have said it differently, maybe. My sheep, Jesus says. Back to this metaphor that he starts the chapter with, with sheep and shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. I know them really well. I know everything there is to know about them. I see every tear that falls from their face. Every time somebody hurts them, I see that. Every time they suffer pain, I see it. Every time they worry, I know it. I know them. There's nothing about them that I don't know. And they follow me. And I give them. He doesn't say, I will. He says, I give them. Present tense. I give them eternal life. They're living this other life now. And they shall never perish No one will snatch them out of my hand. How can you say that? Because my Father who has given them to me, He is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then He makes a claim. This is one of those claims I was talking about. It's big. Buckle your seatbelt. He says, I and the Father are one. God and me? Uno, baby. He doesn't actually say, Uno, baby. I added that myself for a fact. (laughs) What could he possibly mean when he says the Father and I are one, except that the Father and I are one? Big claim. Big controversy. And before this story ends, they pick up stones because they want to stone him. This is the Word of God for us today. Complicated passage, but full of truth. So, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if you came to church this morning and you saw something that you had never seen on the platform before? Right over here, there was a statue. You don't even know what the statue is. It's a big statue of something, somebody. You don't know what it is. You've never seen it in your life, but wow, why is that on the platform at Bethany First Church. And then over in the corner, right over there, under the exit sign in that corner, can you look over there and see? There was another kind of a statue. And you go, what's all the statues doing at BFC? That's weird. Came with my mom on Mother's Day and they had these statues in the room. I don't even know what they were. And then, right over here, this whole section, the seats were all gone. They were just gone. It was, it was empty. It was weird. It was strange. They are just missing. Who unbolted all the seats and took them away? And so people begin to ask me about it. By the time I get done with the service and I'm in the lobby trying to meet folks and say everybody, hi to everybody's kids that came with them on Mother's Day, there's like a mob around me. Rick, what are the statues doing in the sanctuary and who are they and why are the seats missing? And I said, just calm down. It's okay. This statue over here is a statue of a God that we don't worship, but some people in the community do. And they come in this afternoon after we're done and they worship their God here. 
And the statue over in the corner under the exit sign is another group that worships their God. And they come in on Tuesday nights and do that. And then I moved all the seats because there's another group that come in and they worship their God. But they use these prayer cloths. And they wanted to move the seats out of the way so they could open their prayer cloths and get on their knees and worship their God. And man, what kind of pushback would you give me? You would say, I thought you were our shepherd. I thought you were minding the store. This building is 50 years old this year. Built in 1969. 50 years old this year. And the people who sacrificed and gave their money to build this sanctuary built it to worship the Lord and God, our Father of Jesus Christ, not other gods. What are you doing letting other gods be worshipped in here? So that's the context. That's what's going on. For first century Christians, the temple to them, well, it was everything. It was the center of their world. It was the home of the official law. It was the house of God. Get this, okay? It was the actual presence of God on earth. What are you saying? I'm saying God hung out at the temple. I mean, that's believed that was His house. Was He everywhere else? Don't know, but He was there. That's where we kept Him. And, and you're telling me that now this Seleucid Empire has come in, trampled over Jerusalem, kind of taken control of the city, and the priests have let them come in and worship their gods in the temple. Now, you're going to be shocked in a moment. You're going to go, oh, I never knew this. All my life, I've always wondered what that was about. So, so in a minute, you're going to kind of have this, are you kidding me? That's what that means. So... Here, there are these other gods being worshipped in the temple of the one true God. How did it happen? Well, the priest said to themselves, we don't know how long this other regime is going to be here. The enemy is going to rule. So why don't we just make friends? Why don't we scratch their backs? Maybe they'll scratch ours. I'll do them a favor. Maybe they'll do me a favor. Come on in and worship your gods in our temple. And maybe you'll treat me well. And you're saying, that's poor leadership. That's bad shepherding. Come on, seriously, who's minding the store? And so we need a hero. So they find a hero. Judas Maccabeus, the hero. 164 B.C. This is a couple of hundred years before Jesus is born, Okay. He leads the resistance against the enemy. He cleared all the idols out of the temple. He offered proper sacrifices. They lit lamps and they prayed to the God of heaven and earth that nothing like this would ever happen again to their great temple. And then they had a dedication. Okay? And they said, we're going to do this every year. We're going to have a festival. The Festival of Dedication. So that we never forget what happened. Do you know what dedication means in Hebrew? Hanukkah. So every December the 25th, when you Christians are celebrating the birth of Jesus, and you hear some language from others that says, Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah, it's the Jewish people remembering when the temple was rededicated. 
So how many of you learned something today? So now here's the point. To remember Hanukkah for the Jewish people was to remember failed leadership and poor shepherding. Here's the idea. We thought the priests were watching out for us. We thought they were our shepherds watching over us. We thought somebody had this. We thought somebody was in control. Because every one of us needs someone to watch over us. So I, I, don't, I don't know where you are in your journey with God or your journey with faith, but I can tell you there's nobody in the room who says, I'm good on my own. I got it. I am completely self-sufficient in all of my own strength and power. I can take complete care of myself. I don't need any help from anybody or anything. I, I don't know that there's anybody that arrogant or that confused in the room. I think we all have an understanding that says we all need someone to help watch over us. You know? I'm telling you right now, I need a lot of people watching over me. I told you I have a great staff. That's what they do. They just watch over me. <laughs> I am so blessed with the people that God sends in my life to help watch over me. Just this week, there's a guy who attends our church. I just felt like he was saying, Rick, I'm just going to help watch over you because you apparently need it, you know? Just all kinds of people in my life who I just feel like they just kind of help watch over me. And I love it when I get to be on the other side of that. When I get to say to somebody, you're good, I got you, I'm watching over you. I love to do that. I love to say to people, oh, I've, I've got you covered, I'm, I'm watching over you. I'm here to help you out. Now, now get this idea, okay? God, the creator of all things, who knows all things, who is above all things, He is watching over you. He says, I know you. You belong to me. <laughs> You're not homeless. And I'm watching over you. I am the God who knows you, who loves you, who cares deeply about you. You're mine, and I'm watching over you. My wife Annette and I, for years, have um, had this little deal where that we, we sometimes um, like to go to open houses. I think it's how you know you're getting older, too. That's like entertainment, you know. Um, oh, there's an open house sign. We might get ice cream afterwards, you know. Um, and so I remember this one time we, we, we went to this house, and, and, um, and, and it was not open uh, at that moment. It said open house, but the realtor had left and locked the door, and, and um, nobody was living there. It was a vacant home, and, and so Annette... Um, Annette said to me, I wish I could see in that window, but I'm not tall enough. And, and I said, well, well, come here. And so I locked my fingers like this, and, 
And, and I said, here, just back up to me. And so she grabs the window ledge and, uh, and puts her heel in my hand. And I just raise her up to the window where she can see in. And I remember telling you one time years ago when I first came here that that's, that's how I think about preaching. I think that on Sunday mornings, my task is to raise you up. Say, no, come here, seriously, come here, come here. And, and here, just put your heel right here in my hand. I just raise you up, and you can look in the window. The window is Scripture. And as you look through that window, my desire is that you catch a glimpse of Jesus, the love of God the Father, the power of the Father. That's what I think preaching is about. Jesus saw himself as a window. This is pretty cool. A window through which you could see God. What about my works? And, and he was okay to let his actions speak for themselves. Right? What, what if he would have stood up and said, okay, enough already. I'm him, all right? There you go, I said it. I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of the living God. I am divine. Do you think that anything would have changed? Would all of the sudden, all of his parables and all of his countercultural teachings and all of his miracles would have suddenly made sense and they would have said, what have we been thinking? You are indeed the Son of God. Let's get on our knees and worship you. No, I don't think anything would have changed. And, and Jesus just gives them these words. And he, these are the words. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me these are signs as john says they point to something so i went on staff retreat uh this past week our little staff got together and probably while i'm feeling so grateful this morning for our staff and we go down to follow to spend a couple of nights together and 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 we get off the main road and right there's a sign that says Dixie Point and an arrow. That's where we were going, to a place called Dixie Point and an arrow, okay? So we did not get out of our cars right there at that little sign and unload all of our stuff and stand there in the ditch and say, well, this is not a very good place for retreat. Well, well no, that, it was a sign. The, you can't get hung up on the sign. The sign points to something greater, Right? No, we kept driving and there was another sign with another arrow and we turned there and there was another sign with another arrow and we turned there and finally we get to Dixie Point. That's when we unloaded the car. That's when we started playing games and claiming bedrooms and that's when we started having a worship service. This is an awesome place for retreat. You understand signs point to something. There's nothing exciting about the sign itself. It's pointing to something. And Jesus says, all of these works that I'm doing, these miracles that I'm performing, don't you understand? They're signs. It's like a window. And they're pointing to the power of God, the love of God. And it's coming to this place in my life that I say, oh my goodness. With Thomas, my Lord and my God. You are the son of the living God. And I come to this place that I just put my trust in Jesus.
The journey to get there is different for all of us. It's not just this, I believe. No, no, it's, it's leaning in. It's throwing my whole lot in with. It's, I am trusting Jesus for everything. I am trusting Jesus with my life. I am trusting Jesus with my death. I am trusting Jesus with eternity. I am trusting Jesus with everything, my future. I am trusting Jesus. I am putting all of my trust in Him. If I'm ever going to be saved from my sins, it's only because... He saves me from my sins. If I'm ever going to have a fuller life, it's because He gives me a fuller life. If I'm going to be okay and secure in eternity, it's because He makes me secure. I'm trusting Jesus with everything. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this. It's when Jesus says this other thing. When Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And I want to go, you know, He needed a public relations guy. If you're wanting votes, this is not going to get you votes, right? I react against this. Do you? I, I wonder if everybody in the room is thinking like this. Well, I belong, right? I'm one of his, right? Don't you feel that way? I mean, he made me, right? I mean, don't we all belong? I've been trying to figure this out in my head, and I'm not saying I'm there, but it's a process. It's a journey that I'm on. Do, uh, do you believe in order to belong? Is that like the prerequisite? Can't belong unless you believe? Or does belonging enable you to believe? I promise you, I got this backwards in my life. I don't bring it up much, but I was raised in a small Kentucky town. (laughs) And I grew up in a Nazarene church in that little town. And let me tell you something, people. I belonged a long time before I believed. They rocked me to sleep in that nursery and they patted me on the head when I was a toddler and they taught me in Sunday school as I grew up. And those people in that church invited me and my family to their home and they fed me at their kitchen tables. They became like family to me. We had potlucks and we had creek days and they hauled me off to church camp and they took me on camping trips and they invested in my life and I belonged to that community of faith long before I knew what it was really to believe in Jesus. And I think for me, it was belonging to that community of faith is what enabled me to believe in Jesus. And I think what we say to everybody who walks through our doors is you can belong long before you believe. You belong here with us. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you are. I don't care what your life is like. I don't care where you've been. You belong here. And maybe one day you'll believe. But until then, you belong with us. We don't live like this. We live like this. We don't talk like this. We talk like this. (laughs) We don't even believe like this. 
we believe like this. So I've been wanting to tell you about something for a few weeks, but it hadn't seemed like the time was right. But this morning, I think the time is right. I traveled, I told you a few weeks ago, to Africa, to a small country formerly known as Swaziland, Eswatini. And when I was getting ready to go, I was emailing with Doug and Margaret Eaton, who are our missionaries' representatives there. And they said, we're working on your itinerary. It's getting pretty full. We want to get you with as many people as we can, get in as many meetings as we can, do as much planning as we can. But is there anything you would really like to do while you're here? And I said, there's one thing I would like to do. And they said, what would you like to do? I said, I would like to go to Harmon's Rock. I've never been. Harmon's Rock. Yep, never been. And so when Elmer Smelzenbaugh writes a book called Sons of Africa, tells the story of his father, who in 1907 felt a burden to go to Africa to be a missionary, and finally said to God, get this, you listening? He finally says to God, I will go to Africa and live the rest of my life there. So here's a missionary who has no plans to come home. I'm going to die in Africa. And he did. He becomes our first missionary in the Nazarene church to Africa. And from there, the gospel is spread throughout the continent. And Elmer says, my dad used to climb this winding path behind the mission station in Intendozi, up at Pig's Peak. And he would climb to the very top of the mountain. And there was a flat rock. And that's where my dad would pray. You could see so much of Swaziland from that rock up on the very top of that mountain. And he said, as little boys, me and my brother, we would follow him up that winding path and my dad would pray and pray and pray and pray. And then it was like he was overwhelmed by the presence of God. He would weep and he would weep and he would weep and he would take out his handkerchief and he would wipe the tears. He said, I remember one day my dad went to the rock without us to pray. And he stayed so long, we didn't know if he would ever come back. In fact, my mom got worried, and then us kids got scared, and finally my dad came back. And he said he had been up talking to God. And God said to him, Harmon, if the people in the bush felt are ever going to hear the gospel, you're going to have to go tell them. Knowing that it would take his life Malaria would one day kill him. He said, God, I will go into the bush felt. And he went. And so I took a picture on the rock. And here it is. I don't know how well you can see in the picture, but you can see a lot of the country from that rock. And I'll just tell you that Standing on the rock uh, was a sacred moment for me. I was emotional. Um, I thought about it was there that a man knelt and said, God, I will, I will go over into this country even though it's going to cost me my life. I thought about the many, many times that he went to that rock to pray. I don't have a rock, but I got a chair in my little room at home where I pray, and that has become a sacred place for me. And so one of my favorite stories ever in the little book was 
when Elmer was just a teenage boy. Now, this is Dennis's father who is sitting here in front of me. His, um, his mom and dad said to him, Elmer, we're going to send you to America to go to school. Well, go to America. Well, how far is it or where is it? And tried to show me on a map and I couldn't understand it. And they tried to tell me by miles and we couldn't understand that. Me and my siblings, there were three of us they were going to send. And when they tried to tell us in how many days it would take on a ship and we couldn't understand that. Well, how long are we going to be there? We don't know. Are we coming back to Africa? We don't know. Well, when are we going to see you again? We don't know. And he said, I was torn in my spirit. I could barely speak English. I was born in Africa. This was my people. These were my people. This was my land, my home. I didn't want to leave. He said, finally, I decided to go to the rock because that's where my dad settled things, right? And so I climbed the winding path one evening. I wanted to make sure I left before dark because it was scary up there after dark. But I began to pray and before I realized it, darkness had wrapped its blanket around me. And I sensed the presence of someone behind me and I turned and it was, it was Joseph, an African man who was my dad's greatest helper. And Joseph said, have you prayed through, Elmer? And I said, no. Did God tell you He wants you to come back to Africa after you get your education in America? Yes. Did you tell Him you would? No. I told Him we would have to wait and see. No, you can't do that. we got to know how to pray. You have to answer God now. And he said, Joseph began to pray. And he said, I bowed my head forward until it hit that rock. And talking out loud to God and to Joseph and to myself, I said, Lord, I don't know what you see in me. I don't know how you could possibly use me. But if you want my life, it is all yours. You can have it all. I will do whatever you ask of me. And he prayed that prayer on that rock. And Joseph puts his arm around Elmer and says, Elmer, I'm going to make a declaration. Every time I come to Enzingeni, I'm going to come to the rock. And I'm going to talk to God about you. I'm going to pray for you. And Elmer said, although I was in Napa, Idaho, 12,000 miles away, Joseph kept his promise. And every time he went to Enzingeni, he went to the rock and he prayed for me. He said, in Napa, Idaho, I could not get warm. I froze to death. It was the coldest place on earth. I'd moved there from Africa. And Elmer said that the winters were gloomy and lonely and depressing. And I was homesick. And he said, I remember, I remember one day, I just didn't think I could take it another day. And I skipped class and I went to my room and I got on my knees to pray. And as I was on my knees praying, trying to tell God, I didn't think I could do another day in Idaho. He said, a letter came sailing under the door and it landed at my knees. And it was a little white envelope and it was, it was postmarked Swaziland. And I tore open the letter, and it was from Joseph. And he said, Elmer, I've been to the rock, and God told me that your joy is gone. But if that you would reach your hand up, that God would take hold of your hand, 
And Elmer said, I soaked that letter with my tears, and sure enough, I reached my hand up toward heaven, and I felt the presence of God as I've never felt the presence of God before. And he met me there. Do, do you understand that to be in a relationship with the Good Shepherd is deeply, deeply relational? Let me just remind you of the words, okay? My sheep, Jesus says, listen to my voice. And, and I know them. And they follow me. And I give them life. And they will never perish. You understand, don't you? That, that this relationship with the Good Shepherd, if you'll go to that next slide, I think, belonging to Jesus, the Great Shepherd, is deeply relational. It, it, is this, it is this idea of, of being known and knowing. It is, it is this idea of, 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 do you know that I talk to God? Do, do you know that, that there are times when I'm convinced that God speaks to me? Do you know that I believe with everything in my heart that, that He knows me? And that I belong to Him and that He is watching over me. Do you understand what it is to be in this relationship with the shepherd? Wow. And I'm just telling you this morning, this life that I live, I want you to live. I want everybody to live. I want everybody to know. I want everybody, everybody, everybody. And so I felt that God one day said to me, I want you to give your life that everybody can know. So He knows you. You belong to Him. He's watching over you. Why, why is that important? Because every one of us in the room, we all know that we need somebody watching over us. Everybody understands it. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do? You put your trust. You put your trust in Jesus. I trust you for everything. I trust you for my life, my future. Because being in relationship with the shepherd is deeply relational. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for sending your son Jesus thank you for knowing us thank you for loving us thank you for watching over us we need somebody watching over us so we put our trust in you and love knowing you and living in relationship with you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at BethanyNaz.org.